But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, ask the Lord's blessing on our study of his word. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, and to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's been some time since we've been together as a consequence of the Christmas break and difficulties with the internet, um, but hopefully we are back up and running today, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and that is in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 32. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them up to this latter part of Matthew's gospel. This really is the heart of not just this particular gospel, but this is really the heart of the Christian message. Where we are now, these events, that is to say the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I've sometimes said that if you can understand the significance of these events that we're going to take a look at today and next week, if you can begin to understand these things, even if there are many things about Christianity that you do not understand, if you can grasp these great doctrines, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, then really that's all that's necessary in order to be a Christian. That is the heart of the Christian message. Now, that's not to say that that's everything that's involved in being a Christian, but this is to say that this is really the heart of it. Um, you may recall that when Moses encountered God's presence in the burning bush way back in, in the Old Testament, uh, that God spoke to him out of that, and he said, take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. Well, that's what we are doing today. We are standing on holy ground as we take a look at the death of Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf and on behalf of everyone for the sins of the whole world. So this really is holy ground, and we approach it with a great deal of reverence and with care. But let's go ahead and read through these verses, 32 through 56, and then we'll come back and take a look at them in closer detail. Matthew writes, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, 
Leme Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Some years ago, when I was a seminarian at Virginia Theological Seminary, the dean, the then dean of Washington National Cathedral, came and delivered a sermon in a chapel service. And he began the sermon by talking about an event that he had experienced. He was uh, visiting a Washington jewelry shop. Uh, his wife's, um, his anniversary with his wife, their marriage, their wedding anniversary was coming up, and he wanted to get her a special gift. And as he was waiting in line to be served, there was a woman in front of him. Uh, you know the type of customer. Uh, she was very agitated. She was looking for a gift. Apparently, she had been invited to a confirmation service. Uh, she was not uh, a religious person herself, but she knew that she was expected to present a gift. And so she went into this jewelry store and she told the person, the clerk behind the counter, that she needed some sort of a religious gift. Uh, the person was a Christian. And so the clerk suggested that perhaps she might like to buy her, this young woman and uh, her niece, as it was, a little necklace, perhaps. And she suggested that perhaps she buy her a little cross. And so the woman began to look at all of these crosses. The clerk brought out several of them. They were under the glass. There must have been about 30 or 40 of them. And she said, are any of these of interest to you? And the customer tapped on the glass case and she said, yes, I, I think that one right there. And the clerk reached into the case and pulled out a beautiful gold cross. And the woman immediately shook her face, the customer. And she said, no, 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 that's not the one. And she tapped again on the glass and she said, it's that one right there. At which point the clerk reached in again, pulled out another cross. And again, the customer shook her head and she said, no, no, that's not the one. And she tapped and she said, it's that one. Finally, the clerk in frustration said, ma'am, you're going to have to tell me which one. You're going to have to be more specific. And the woman blurted out these words. She said, that one right there, that one with the little man on it. That one with a little man on it. That's the way our culture looks at the cross of Jesus Christ. We hold it as of little account, of little importance, little significance. The cross has become something that is commonplace to us. 
But we have to understand that for the early Christians, the cross was the symbol of their joy. It was their hope. And it has been the hope of Christians down through the centuries. We place it in our cemeteries. We put it on the top of our churches. We do indeed wear it as, as jewelry around our necks. The cross is our glory. Or at least it used to be. But it's important to remember that what we are experiencing in our culture today is really all not all that new. There was a time in history when the cross was not glorified, when the cross was not a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul acknowledges this. If you want to, you can keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 18. I've sometimes said that the Corinthian church was the Apostle Paul's problem child of all the churches that were being forced to conform to the secular culture around them, it was the Corinthians in particular who seemed to fall prey to the temptation. And so Paul was constantly writing to the Corinthians to encourage them to stay on track, to repent, and to come back in line with the message of the Christian life. And he knew that there was tremendous pressure from the culture, from the society, from the secular world to force Christians to conform. And he knew that one of the things that the secular world mocked and made fun of was the cross of Christ. And that's why Paul wrote these words as a message of encouragement to the Corinthian Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he said, for the word of the cross or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It's utter nonsense. He said, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. He understood that the cross was foolishness. Paul says it. He said, it's foolishness to Greeks, and it is a stumbling block to Jews. But to us, he said, to those of us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the message of salvation. Now, Paul needed to say that because in that first century Greco-Roman culture, and indeed in first century Jewish society, the cross was anything but a message of salvation. It was a horrifying thing. You know, it's rather interesting when we read through this account of the crucifixion in Matthew's gospel and in the other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John as well, one of the things that you will notice that's rather extraordinary is that these events are told in an almost matter-of-fact way. There's really no mention of the gory details of the crucifixion. Now, that's something that we in our culture would probably expect. Because if you look at literature today or you look at films and movies today, it seems to be that there's a great deal of what we call gratuitous violence. It seems that the grittier and the gorier it is, the better it is, and the more people that go out to see it. That's the kind of culture in which we live. And so we would expect that the gospel writers would give us all of the gory details of crucifixion. But that's not actually the case. And I think part of the reason for that is that everybody in that first century society knew what crucifixion was like. There was no need to go into the gory details. It was commonplace. It was something that people saw on a regular basis. Now, people who were executed by means of crucifixion, and we'll talk a little bit about why some people were crucified and some people were not, 
But in those days, when a person was crucified, it was always a public spectacle. It was meant to be a public placarding. It was meant to be a warning to those who would transgress. A crucifixion was a public event in the same way that the hanging of pirates in the 18th century. We all know that Steve Bonnet and his crew, for example, were hanged in a public way down at White Point Gardens here in Charleston. It was meant to be a public spectacle, a warning to those who would seek to transgress or break the law. And many people were familiar with crucifixion in the ancient world. But even to those who were familiar with it, it was regarded as the worst possible form of punishment. In fact, and this is a very interesting point, crucifixion was something that was reserved only for the dregs of society. If you were a Roman citizen and you were guilty of a capital crime, as bad as your crime may have been, because you are a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. It was considered to be beneath the dignity of a Roman to be crucified. This is what the ancient author Cicero said. He said, let the very mention of the cross be far removed. To be far removed. Don't even think about it, he says. From a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. The Romans didn't even want to talk about crucifixion. It was an offense to them. This is one of the reasons, incidentally, that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down, but the Apostle Paul was not. Tradition holds that the Apostle Paul was beheaded, beheaded on the Ostian Way, which was the main thoroughfare going out of Rome. Now, why was Paul beheaded and Peter was crucified? The answer is really very simple. It was because Paul, even though he was guilty of capital crimes, sedition against the empire, at least that was the charge that was lodged against him, even though Paul was guilty of the same crime that Peter was, Paul was a Roman citizen and therefore could not be crucified. But Peter, because he was not a Roman citizen, a Roman subject, yes, but not a Roman citizen with all the rights and privileges of citizenship, could be crucified. So you need to understand that even though the gospel writers don't give us the gory details because they were familiar with this, nevertheless, the cross was an offensive thing to them. The Romans despised it. They hated it. They thought it was beneath the dignity of a human being. And likewise, the Jews thought that crucifixion was a horrible thing. They harked back to a passage in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, that said if someone was executed by being hanged on a tree, they were under the curse of God. Now, this is one of the reasons why when Jesus was crucified, along with the other two thieves, we're told that his body had to be removed. This was the Passover, of course. This was one of the major feasts of the Jews. And the one thing they did not want was to have those bodies, which were a curse from God, out there hanging on those trees as they were trying to celebrate the festival. So we need to understand that in the first century, the cross was an offense. To us, we glory in the cross. Isn't that what we say? In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. But that was not always the case, and we're beginning to see more and more in our culture today the cross is becoming offensive to people, and if not offensive, at least pedestrian, something we take for granted. Now, the gospel writers were well familiar with this kind of crucifixion. It was a terrible death. 
It was designed to take place over the course of many hours, sometimes over the course of days. It was intended to be a warning to anybody else who would attempt to perform evil deeds. And it was indeed a painful and horrific death. As I said, it was a public spectacle. Now, as I said, what we have here are just the facts, the details. But the details, even though they are told in a sort of straightforward way, are nevertheless quite interesting. And they give us insight into some other events that may be happening as a consequence of the Lord's death. I'm going to take a look at just a few of them, and then we're going to move on uh, to the miracles that surround Jesus' death, because there were a number of miraculous events that likewise surrounded these straightforward facts. So the first thing that Matthew mentions, of course, is the fact that Jesus was scourged. Uh, we're told that after Pontius Pilate finally handed Jesus over to be crucified, and we've already looked at the fact that Pilate was not really convinced that Jesus was guilty of any crime deserving death. We saw that Pilate, his conscience was pricked, was trying desperately to get Jesus off, to have a well-known um, troublemaker released to the crowds, but nevertheless, the people insisted, and Pilate, because he was fearful of the people and the charge that they were bringing against him, namely that he was not a friend of Caesar, ultimately handed Jesus over to be crucified. He was taken out. He was taken out, and he was cruelly beaten, beaten by the Roman soldiers. We talked about that game of the king that they played. And then after having been beaten, and by the way, this, this type of scourging that Jesus endured was so brutal that oftentimes people died before they ever made it to crucifixion, simply because of the trauma to their body, simply because of the loss of blood. Now, if you do have some sort of morbid curiosity as to what this was really like, there was a movie that came out some years ago called The Passion of the Christ. It was directed by Mel Gibson, and that will give you a very graphic and accurate picture of what this kind of physical punishment was like. But what I wanted you to keep in the back of your mind is the fact that Jesus' suffering was not just a physical suffering. As terrible as it was, that was momentary. It was temporary. The real suffering that Christ endured was the separation from the Father that was the result of the sin of the whole world being heaped upon him. But nevertheless, here he is, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, being publicly humiliated, beaten, scourged, his back lacerated, tremendous trauma to the body, loss of blood, beaten beyond recognition. And then we're told he was handed over to be crucified, and they let him out. Now, in that day, it was customary for a prisoner to carry the means of his execution. And so it became necessary uh, for Jesus to carry his own cross. Uh, this was the sort of thing that was done to prisoners in the 19th century. Uh, sometimes uh, a prisoner was going off to be hanged, and he would be taken there in a cart sitting on his own coffin. It was a reminder to him of the, the terrible deeds that he had done. Well, here is Jesus being forced to carry his cross. But we're told in verse 32 that as he made his way outside of the city, the crucifixion would have taken place on a major thoroughfare, just as Paul was crucified outside of Rome as, as an object lesson to all those making their way into the city. So most of these executions would take place outside the city. 
on a major thoroughfare. And indeed, that is the way it was for Jesus. So as he's making his way out the city gate, carrying his cross, having this tremendous loss of blood, we're told that he stumbles and he falls. And a man is seized. This man is Simon of Cyrene. This was a Roman province in the northern part of Africa. And Simon, a Jew who's come up for Passover, sees this great procession making its way out of the city. He can hear all of the racket, the jostling of the crowd, the shouts and the jeers. He can see the Roman soldiers. Perhaps he was curious. He got close and he sees this man bloodied and beaten, carrying this cross. He sees him fall and the Roman soldiers immediately see Simon and they force him to carry Christ's burden. They compelled him to carry the Lord's cross all the way to this place called Golgotha. Now, we don't know really anything more about Simon of Cyrene. Uh, he's not mentioned anymore in the Gospels. But there are some things in the New Testament that suggest to us that even though this would have been a terrible thing for Simon, I mean, you have to remember the Jews absolutely despised the Romans. This would have been a terrible thing for Simon to be impressed by these Roman soldiers and forced to carry the cross of Christ. It was a reminder to him as a Jew that the Romans were in control, these pagan polytheistic brutes. And here they are forcing him. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. He's forced to carry this cross. It's humiliating for him, just as it was humiliating for Christ. He hadn't done anything wrong, and yet he's forced to do this. And yet there's a sense in which Simon may have been one of the luckiest men in the world being forced to carry the cross of Christ, because what that made him was a witness to the events that followed. We're told they came to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there's every indication that Simon saw this thing through to the end. And there are some other indicators in the New Testament that witnessing Christ's crucifixion changed everything for him. Mark's version of this story, Mark chapter 15, tells us that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And what is interesting is that those two men reappear in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 19, there's a reference to Alexander. And in Romans chapter 16, Paul sends greetings to those who are in the church in Rome, and there's a reference to Rufus. So it may very well have been the case that Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Christ all the way to Golgotha. He witnesses these events, and perhaps he is transformed by them. He goes back to North Africa. He shares this message with his family, and his sons become followers of Jesus Christ, because, as I said, they reappear again in the New Testament. Now, that's not stated explicitly, but it certainly seems to be implied. And here's something else that is particularly interesting. We are told that Simon was from Cyrene, as I said, this province in northern Africa. Well, if you turn to the book of Acts, you'll find that one of the most remarkable churches in those early days was the church in Antioch. 
In fact, it was from that church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first missionary journey, a missionary journey that would ultimately transform the world. You and I are sitting here today as Gentiles because of Paul's missionary journeys. And the church that sent Paul out on those journeys was the church in Antioch, a church we're told that was founded by men and women from among other places, Cyrene. Now, this is very early on, which means that the gospel, which originated in and around Jerusalem, would not have had the time to make it all the way to North Africa, because the missionary era hadn't begun, unless there was somebody who already knew the story. Now, who was that person? Well, I think it's safe to assume that that person was probably this man, Simon, of Cyrene, this man who would have been unhappy having been pressed into service, but this man who, whether he realized it or not, had been given this great privilege of carrying the cross and being a witness to the central event in the history of mankind, an event that would ultimately transform his life, and as a consequence of transforming his life, transform the lives of his family, his sons, this event, which was written in blood, would make it possible for them to have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, what that is a picture of is Romans 8.28, God being sovereign and working all things, even tragedies, catastrophes, together for good. And if it teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that, again, Jesus' death is not some kind of tragic accident. God is superintending the entire process. This is part of the plan. It looks to us from a worldly point of view as a messy accident, a tragedy. And indeed it is. But it is also the means of our salvation, yours and mine. Well, they are taken to Golgotha, Jesus and these two thieves, and they are crucified. The nails are driven through their hands and their feet. And Jesus has already been humiliated. That crown of thorns has been placed on his head. He is bleeding and he is suffering. And at this point, we're told, verse 34, uh, that someone offered him wine mixed with gall. Now, what that was, was something that was designed to deaden the pain. It was something that the women of Jerusalem would sometimes mix together as a tonic or a means of somehow deadening the pain of a person who was in great agony. And we're told that they held it up to Jesus to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not. In other words, Jesus wanted to endure the fullness of suffering. When my wife went into labor with our first child over uh, 25 years ago now, I'll never forget it. I was there for the birth of all four of our children, but that's the one that I remember the most. I suppose because I was so young and it was the first child and all of that. And I remember that Kristen went into this determined to have a natural birth. In other words, she didn't want any drugs. She didn't want an epidural. She didn't want any of that. She wanted to experience the full pain, agony, mess, everything. 
And I remember her being in absolute agony. We're about 45 minutes into this. She's not fully dilated. It's going to be hours. She's in absolute agony. The contractions are taking place. And the doctor comes in and asks her, would you like something to deaden the pain? And she never even got a chance to answer. I said, please, please give her something to deaden the pain. It was terrible to see her in agony like that. And I'm happy to say that she took the epidural and nobody even had to ask her for the next three children. But that's not the way it was with Jesus. He endured the full suffering. He didn't want anything to deaden the pain, anything to cloud his mind. He had come there to do a job and he was going to see it through to the end. And the humiliation didn't stop with the crucifixion. Even as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, we're told that they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and they kept watch over him. This was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 22, that they would divide the very things that he owned. Jesus, the Son of Man, did not even have a place to lay his head. Here he was, the king on the cross. Not a king on a throne, but a king on the cross who had left the glory and the majesty of heaven and condescended to our lowly estate. And the only things that he possessed with the clothes on his back, and there, as he is suffering for the sins of the whole world, enduring the curse of the damned, they are doing what? They are gambling for his clothing. The clothing of the king. And that's what he was. He was a king. You don't see kings very much today. I suppose the closest thing that we get to seeing a monarch or a king is the Queen of England, constitutional monarch. We don't see kings today, but in the ancient world, kings were somewhat common. And they were powerful people. They were clothed in soft raiments. They lived in palaces. Well, here is a king. But he's lifted up not on a throne. He's lifted up on this tree to be a curse, to be a byword. That's the king. And that was the charge that was over his head. That's why Jesus was crucified. Why? Because he claimed to be a king. Look at, beginning at verse 37, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they put that up there in mocking Jesus. But that's really who he was. He was the king of the Jews. He was the king of the universe. And he's your king and mine. And the apostle Paul says, whether people recognize it or not, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is indeed the king. So just think of this humiliation, beaten, scourged, suffering. Even the charge over his head is meant to be a form of mocking. They're gambling for his clothing. And here he is in the midst of those who really were criminals. Chapter 27, verse 38 says, And the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. That word robber is a very interesting word. It is the same word that was used to describe Barabbas. Remember Pontius Pilate when he tried to free Jesus offered a substitute for the Lord. 
this man who was a rabble rouser, this man who was an insurrectionist, this man who was guilty of murder, Barabbas. And the people rejected that offer. They said, no, free Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Well, it's the same word here to describe these men who were crucified on the Lord's right and left. It's the same word that was used to describe Barabbas. And it means more than just robber. This is not the best translation. Robbery was not a capital crime. If you were guilty of stealing or you're guilty of theft, you could be punished. Sometimes it was punishment by hard labor, but it was not a capital crime. So these men were probably compatriots of Barabbas. These men were part of that insurrection. These were men that were trying to overthrow the Roman government. Now, it's interesting that there are three crosses here. There wouldn't have been time to make a cross for Jesus. So that center cross was probably a cross that was reserved for Barabbas. This cross was probably for Barabbas and his two compatriots. And when the people rejected Pilate's offer, they let Barabbas go, and Jesus took his place quite literally there on that cross. And we're told that even these thieves, even in their suffering, even in their agony, called out and cursed Christ. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us about the penitent thief, but Luke does. You all know the story that one of these men eventually came to his senses. We don't know why. Perhaps he saw the way in which Jesus was willing to suffer. Perhaps he heard the Lord's words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Perhaps he noticed the way that Jesus did not strike back or curse those who were cursing him. But something was moving in his heart and in his mind, and ultimately he turned to the other thief and he said, stop it. He said, stop it. Do you not realize that we are guilty, but this man is innocent? And then he turned to Jesus, and he said, Father, forgive them. That's what Jesus said. And this man said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. I said that Simon of Cyrene was a lucky man to be forced to carry Christ's cross. He didn't think so at the time, but he was. I think that this penitent thief, whether he realized that or not, was the luckiest man in the world on this particular day. Oh, he was a terrible person. He was guilty. He was a robber. He was an insurrectionist. He was probably a murderer, just like the ringleader Barabbas. And he deserved to be crucified. He deserved to be punished. But of all the crosses in all of the Roman history, he happened to be crucified on this one, on this day, next to the Son of God, and as a consequence, he was saved. Again, it's a reminder to us that in spite of it all, God is in control. Our times, our seasons are in his hands. Now, the people are deriding Jesus. Verse 39 says, as those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Of course, Jesus had said that. They misunderstood his words completely, but here they are hurling his own words at him as a form of insult. If you are the son of God, come on down from the cross. And then we read this, verse 41, and so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others he cannot save himself. It's really interesting that Matthew mentions 
the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, because those were the three groups that comprised the highest court in Judaism. Those three elements formed the Sanhedrin. They were supposed to stand for justice. And here they were, hurling insults at this man who was suffering, this man who was, in fact, their savior and their king. Now, what I want you to understand, and as I said, if you can understand these events, you can understand, you've grasped the nettle of Christianity, you've grasped the heart of the gospel. What I want you to understand is that Jesus endured all of this, but he endured all of this for you. The pain, the agony, the suffering, the insults, all of that was for you and for me. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that this is really what it's all about? Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back, if you will, to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 53. This is one of the greatest passages in all the Old Testament. It's a song of the suffering servant. The prophet writes, now remember, these words were written hundreds of years before Jesus even appeared on the scene, hundreds of years before he was even born in Bethlehem, let alone dying upon the cross. But listen to what these words say. It's a depiction of Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out from the land of the living? stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Skip ahead to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with 
the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what Jesus endured. We can think of the suffering, the pain, the agony, and all of that, but perhaps the greatest suffering that Jesus endured was that having the sins of the whole world heaped upon him, he found himself separated from the Father. You and I, in our natural state, walk apart from God. Jesus had never done that in his entire life. And he endured the dark night of the soul for you and for me. Listen, if you read these accounts and the things that Jesus endured, and you do not realize that all of this was done for you, you really don't understand what Christianity is. That the horrific events that Jesus endured, he endured for you. Bishop J.C. Ryle, great bishop of Liverpool, England, put it this way. He said, was he scourged? It was that through his stripes, you might be healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a malefactor, numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be justified and reckoned innocent from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die? And that's the most painful and disgraceful of deaths. It was that you and I might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. You've all heard the old hymn. We sing it every Good Friday. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We were all there, my friends. And every time you and I sin, we drive the nails, we plait that crown of thorns, we pierce that steady brow, we do it, and Jesus Christ mounts the arms of the cross, and he suffers, and he dies for you and for me. He dies that we might live forevermore. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. And on the other hand, if you do understand that, you understand what it means to be a Christian. This is holy ground. Now, one of the unique things that Matthew does here in his account of the crucifixion is that he records a series of events, in addition to the ones that we've already talked about, that were miraculous in nature. We don't often dwell on these, but there were a number of miracles that took place as Jesus was dying upon the cross. I suppose one of the reasons we don't dwell on these miracles, and there are a number of them, depending upon who's counting four or five of them, I suppose one of the reasons we don't really dwell on these miracles is because shortly after Jesus' death, the greatest miracle takes place. On the third day, Jesus is raised to life again. 
And that, of course, is the great miracle, and it overshadows everything else. But nevertheless, Matthew does record a number of miracles that take place as Jesus is suffering and dying there on Golgotha. And they each have significance, and I think they each have importance for our individual lives. So I want to take a look at them. Now, when I say miracles, I'm fully aware of the fact that you and I are living in an age of skepticism. We're living as post-enlightenment people. We're living in an age of science and technology, and people have a tendency to sort of look askance at miracles. We tend to raise an eyebrow when a miracle is mentioned. But I want you to step back from that for a moment and just consider the fact that if you can believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth, if you can believe in a God who created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer power of his word, let's face it, folks, miracles like these, even miracles like a resurrection are child's play for such a God. So if we're honest with ourselves, we can't deny the fact that if there is a God, miracles are at least a theoretical possibility. Now, someone might ask, well, why don't we see miracles today? Why don't we see this sort of thing happening today? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first reason is this, miracles by definition are rare. That's what makes them miraculous. If they were every day, they'd be commonplace. So miracles are by definition rare things. But C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us to understand why miracles are something that we don't see every day. Here's what Lewis wrote. He wrote a wonderful little book, as you know, called Miracles. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. But this is what he said about miracles. He said, you are probably right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. Just think about that. You are probably right in thinking you will never see a miracle done. Why? He said, because they come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. If your own life does not happen to be near one of those great ganglions or crossroads, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your window. How likely is it that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide? That we should see a miracle is even less likely. Nor, if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. For nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch up about the same areas of history, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. Well, here it is. Misery of the highest form. The Son of God dying upon the cross. Is it any surprise that we should see miraculous events? There is a sense in which this is an appropriate bookend. Jesus came into this world in great humility, and yet his birth was surrounded by miracles. We speak of the star and the angels. Here Jesus is passing from this world with great humility, and miracles once again attend the event. Let's take a look at just what these miracles are. The first one is mentioned in verse 45. Now, about the sixth hour, 
there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That is from about 12 o'clock until about three o'clock. As Jesus was hanging upon the cross, we're told that darkness covered the land. Now, let me just say very clearly, these miracles, like the other events that I mentioned, are presented in a matter-of-fact way. The gospel writer doesn't give us a great deal of detail, and furthermore, he doesn't impregnate these with any kind of special meaning. We would expect him to say, no, this is what the darkness meant, this is what the tearing of the veil meant, this is what the earthquake meant, but he doesn't do that. I actually think that lends credibility to the account. He is simply reporting these things as they happened. Now, the other New Testament writers do see meaning and significance in these, and I think that there was meaning and significance in these, but the gospel writer simply records them as they happened. And I think that, as I said, is a testimony to the credibility of the account. But we're told that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. What caused this darkness? We don't know. Over the centuries, people have come up with all kinds of conclusions. Storms, we know, can cause darkness. When the great Vesuvius erupted in Pompeii, there was darkness that came over the earth. Some years ago, right here in Charleston, we all witnessed an eclipse in which the land became dark. Dark as night. I remember being on the top of this building, the ministry's hall, and watching that eclipse. And as the land became dark, I watched as the street lights came on. It became that dark. Dark as though it was night. And so some people have suggested that this was perhaps a storm or this was perhaps an eclipse. We really don't know what it was. Probably was not an eclipse because this took place at the time of the Passover, and the Passover always takes place at the time of a full moon. What we do know is that God was pulling a veil, as it were. Here were these people. They were enjoying this spectacle, this bloody, humiliating spectacle. And it shows the Son of God, here as he is suffering... The Father, out of love, pulls a veil, as it were, over these events. As if to say that mankind has no right to look upon the suffering of this man. It's really interesting. The Christian writer Tertullian, early Christian writer, lived from 155 to 240 AD, makes mention of this event in his writings. He simply records the fact he was ministering to Gentiles, and he makes mention of the fact that there was a reference to this darkness over the land here in Palestine that was recorded in their own annals. So apparently this was an event that was well known to the people of antiquity. But at the very least, what it represents is the darkness of human sin, the darkness of your heart and my heart, that would lend itself to these events. But there's a second miracle that takes place. We're told that as Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're told that the temple curtain was torn in two. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in order to understand the significance of this particular event that's just told to us almost in passing, you have to understand the temple complex in the first century. The temple 
was one of the great buildings of antiquity. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was an extraordinary structure. It sat on the top of Mount Zion. You can go there today and you can see the location of the temple building. That's where the Dome of the Rock is today, a Muslim shrine. But in that day is where the temple was located. But you had to climb up to Mount Zion. You had to climb up to the temple and you had to go through a whole series of courts. The temple itself was surrounded by a series of courts. The outermost court was known as the Court of the Gentiles. And this was as far as Gentile people could go. Uh, this is, by the way, where all of the buying and the selling took place. When Jesus came in at the beginning of Holy Week and drove out the money changers, you recall, overturning their tables, saying that they had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Well, that was the court of the Gentiles. And again, that's as far as Gentiles were permitted to go in proximity to the temple. There used to be signs that were posted all around the court of the Gentiles that said, trespassers will be not prosecuted, but executed. One of the charges brought against the Apostle Paul that got him arrested in Jerusalem years later was that he had taken Gentiles beyond the court of the Gentiles. So that was the outermost court. Beyond that court, you passed through a gate and up several stairs to what was known as the court of the women. That was as far as Jewish women could go. And then you passed through another gate, up more stairs, and eventually you came to what was known as the court of Israel. That was as far as Jewish men could go. So they could go further than the Gentiles, further than the women. But beyond that, there was another court. That was known as the court of the priests. And that's where the priests could go. But there were still courts beyond that. There were still areas that even the priests could not go. There was a place called the holy place, where the outer sacrifices were made, where there was a basin for washing. But then there was this innermost sanctum. It was called the most holy place. And there was only one person who could go there. And that was the high priest. And he could only go there one day out of the year on the day of atonement. And he went in there to make sacrifice for the sins of the whole people. And then coming out, he would sprinkle the blood of the animal on the people as a covering for their sins. But he could only go there once a year. And he did it on behalf of of the people. And there was a great curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now that most holy place in Old Testament times is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The Ark of the Covenant was this long box and there were these two cherubs or two angels on the top and their wings extended and touched over the center. And that area above the wings was known as the mercy seat. It's where God dwelt symbolically. And in the Ark of the Covenant, as you know, were the tablets of Moses, the broken tablets, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Broken. Why? Because it symbolized the fact that the people had broken God's law. And so God, as he's dwelling there on that mercy seat above the wings of the cherubs, he's hovering above what? The broken law. He's looking down and he sees the broken law. And the priests went in to make atonement for the people there in that place. And we're told that when Jesus died, that curtain, that curtain that separated that holy place 
from the rest of the world was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what did that represent? It represented a number of things. But the temple itself, being there in the midst of Jerusalem, represented the fact that God was in the presence of his people. It represented the imminence of God. But the fact that the high priest was the only one that could go into the inner sanctum represented the fact that the God who was there in the midst of his people was also the Holy One of Israel. He was righteous. He was holy. He was transcendent. And because men had broken the law, because God looked down from that mercy seat and what he saw was the broken law, men could not approach him. For the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. The high priest had to go in there and make atonement for the sin. But when Jesus died upon the cross, he paid the price for our sin. He opened the way by which men could gain access to God. They no longer had to go through mediators. They had access to him directly. The parting of the curtain is one of the most significant of all the miracles, and it represents a number of things. First of all, it represents the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. Have you ever heard those words before? We say them every Sunday, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Offered when? Well, offered 300, offered in the year 33 AD, but offered once and for all, never to be offered again. Every year, the high priest, as I said, had to go into that inner sanctum and make sacrifice for the people. But when Jesus mounted the arms of the cross and offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for the world, it was a perfect sacrifice and it never needed to be offered again. So the old system of sacrifices, thousands of lambs slaughtered year in and year out at the time of the Passover, Jesus becomes the ultimate Paschal lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. No more sacrifice for sin, is necessary. And it means that you and I now have the opportunity to approach God directly. You and I, as sinful human beings, have no right to come into the presence of the holy God. This is interesting. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, part of the ceremony was that they would tie a rope around his ankle. And do you know why? Because if he had not made atonement for his own sins, he went in there with an impure heart, he would be struck down by the glory and the majesty and the justice of God. And because no one else was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies and retrieve his body, they had to reel him out like a great fish. That symbolized the glory, the majesty, the justice of God. And now all of a sudden, you and I can go into the presence of God. Have you ever noticed that when in the liturgy we get to the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that the celebrant says, and now, as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say. Has that ever struck you as a little odd that we go boldly into the presence of God? Shouldn't we go with humility? Well, we can go boldly, you see. We can go boldly. Why? Because the way has been opened. We are no longer separated. The price has been paid. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 28. Nor was it to offer 
into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Jesus' death upon the cross opened the way by which you and I can have fellowship with God. Now, there are other miracles that took place here on Good Friday. And let's see, do we have enough time to take a look at those? We don't. We come back together again. I want to take a look at the shaking of the earth. And I want to take a look at what I regard as the greatest miracle of all. You might think the greatest miracle of all is the fact that the, the temple curtain was torn in two, or that the earth became dark, or that there was this great earthquake, and the raising of the dead, the Old Testament saints, appeared to those who were in Jerusalem. But actually, I think the greatest miracle of all, and the one that was rejoiced over more than any other in heaven, was the confession of this hardened Roman soldier, who having seen Jesus die, blurted out those words, surely this was the Son of God. Because you'll recall those were precisely the same words that Peter blurted out at Caesarea. And we're told that that transformed his life. It was the confession of salvation. And that is what this centurion did. So we'll take a look at those events when we come back together again next week. But again, the important thing to remember about this, you don't need to remember the gore. You don't need to remember all the grit. What you need to remember is that everything that Jesus endured, he endured, endured on your behalf. He didn't just do it for the sins of the world. He did it for you. Jesus mounted the arms of the cross for you. He mounted the arms of the cross for me as an individual, not just for the collective whole, but for you. He suffered all of that derision, all of that pain, all of that sorrow, all of that humiliation. He drank that bitter cup to its dregs, and he did it for you. If you grasp that, my friends, you grasp the heart of Christianity and the door to paradise, the veil having been torn, is now open to you. May God grant us the grace to see these things and in the cross of Christ to glory for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for these simple, straightforward accounts of what Jesus Christ endured on our behalf. There's no need to embellish them. They speak to our hearts grant that we may open those hearts to Jesus. We were there. We drove those nails. We put the spear in his side. We plaited that crown of thorns. And he endured it all for us and for our salvation. Grant, like the penitent thief, we might see ourselves aright in the light of eternity. And like that thief and like that Roman centurion, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
that we too may rejoice in a symbol of death that has become for us the way of everlasting life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you later. It's great to have you back again at the beginning of this year, and we'll continue to work our way through. We're almost through, Matthew. What are we going to do after that? I'll let you know as soon as I figure it out. But in the meantime, there's much to see here in, in Matthew, and the best, of course, is yet to come. We still have the story of Easter. So God bless you, and I will see you again very soon. Take care.